Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hello and welcome to the Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Van Leeuwen, and here's what's making news this week. Two of the biggest races on the international calendar were decided over the weekend with the latest champions of Monaco and Indianapolis crowned. In the Principality, it was Max Verstappen who prevailed from pole position ahead of Fernando Alonso and Esteban Ocon. And across the pond, there was a thrilling and somewhat controversial end of the Indy 500, Joseph Newgarden passing Marcus Ericsson in a single lap restart dash to win the race. There will be 26 supercars on the grid for the upcoming Darwin Triple Crown, with Triple Eight to field a wildcard entry. Zane Goddard will race at the Super Cheap Auto back to Camaro at Hidden Valley before he teams up with Craig Lowndes for the Enduros later in the year. Speaking of the Enduros, there are now just four formerly unconfirmed seats on the grid for Sandown and Bathurst after Brad Jones Racing locked in its lineup. It's an unchanged roster for the Aubrey squad, with Dale Wood, Dean Fiore, Jordan Boys, and Jackson Evans all returning. The majority of the Supercast teams are set to test this week. We're running to take place at Winton on Wednesday and Queensland Raceway on Thursday. Not all teams will burn up one of their two remaining test days, though, with Erebus opting to instead hold an evaluation day for Super 2 drivers Jay Hansen and Cooper Murray in Will Brown's Camaro. That will leave the series-leading team with two days up its sleeve ahead of the Enduros later this year. The future of the Perth Super Sprint has been secured for at least another two years thanks to a new deal between Supercars and the WA government. And Fabian Coulthard is set to return to Carrera Cup with Porsche Centre Melbourne in Darwin. Joining me this week to discuss all that and more is a teammate that greatly regrets parking his Chevy Cruze a little too close to the Speedway in Indianapolis over the weekend, Stefan Bartholomew. Stefan, are you battling a post-motor racing Christmas hangover right now? Hello, Andrew. I actually uh, tuned into the Indy 500 just before that wheel flew over the fence, which was a uh, genuinely horrifying thing to see. They uh, they certainly got lucky there. Yeah, Yep, no, I did wonder if making light of it was the best idea, given the fact that it could have gone so spectacularly poorly. But anyway, sorry here to bring we are. down the mood. No, then. no, no, it's fine. Look, let's uh, let's just crack on. Let's crack on with the supercars news that's doing the rounds this week, Stefan. And it's testing week with a whole lot of Gen Three running set to take place in Victoria and Queensland over the next couple of days. It will be quite critical running for all concerned as teams continue to get their heads around these new Gen 3 cars. Uh, for the four teams, there's also likely to be some more mapping bits and pieces to trials for performance looks to get a tweaked version of the V3 engine map that was trialed in practice in Tasmania up and running for Darwin and it's big long front straight there. Uh, on the Chev side, Shane Van Gisbergen actually said at the Triple Eight wildcard launch over the weekend that, you know, it's it's an important chance to try 
some more adventurous stuff would set up that you just can't do on a race weekend. And that sort of makes sense if you look at where Triple Eight is, uh, because it does seem they have been playing the sort of safe, consistent game so far um, in the first few rounds in the Gen 3 era. But how is the swagger at Erebus right now? Like instead of using a test day, they're so confident in their Gen 3 pace that they're going to stick a pair of Super 2 kids in Will Brown's car for an evaluation day instead and keep a proper test day for Will and Brody Kostecki up its sleeve. Uh, Stefan, is this brilliant bravery from Erebus or could it come back to bite them, do you reckon? Well, it's an interesting move. Like they are clearly in a great spot at the moment and having another test day to use later on will be great in terms of getting co-drivers up to speed and, and everything like that. But certainly from the outside, it's a bold call and it really sets up an interesting narrative for the next phase of the season where Erebus are really the hunted. And you talk about Triple Eight, like they're going to go testing with three cars because they're going to have their wild card there as well. And they'll ingest a lot of information from that and if you look back at the early car of the future seasons some of those pre-darwin test days yielded real step changes in performance for triple eight like some of that was new parts which you can't do now but yeah i still think this could be a turning point in their campaign and if you look then on the forward side like those guys have obviously got a bit going on, but DJR, for example, like their preseason was really interrupted by some mechanical issues. So they're absolutely itching to get a full test day in. So yeah, it's just going to be fascinating to see who moves forward in these next few events and yeah, whether Erebus can keep that advantage. Definitely a fascinating approach. There's no doubt about that, but we've sort of seen Erebus go their own way. That's been the mantra, you know, in terms of their car build and their testing program ahead of the season. And it's worked so far, so uh, so maybe this is another little gamble that is going to pay off for them. We'll just have to wait and see. I'm um, just coming back to that parody stuff for a second. There was a media roundtable with Ford Performance boss Mark Rushbrook earlier today, where he addressed Ford's current position uh, on parody and supercars. Um, now, based on some feedback that I've had from drivers, that you know the, the engine may not be the only parody issue at play here. I actually asked Mark for his thoughts on whether engine alone can fix this, and here's what he had to say. I think that comes back to the data transparency. So in every racing series outside of supercars, we have full transparency into the data and we know what our competitor, what we are doing relative to our competitors on track. So we know where we as a manufacturer may be falling short or, or succeeding um, or our partners, whether it's an engine partner or a, a team, we have that as a dashboard in front of us. Um, we don't in supercars. So to be honest with you, we we can make observations uh, based upon what we see on track and what data is available from our teams. But until there is data transparency, we can't draw clear conclusions of engine parity or anything else. Mark was also asked how much patience Ford Performance has in this fight for parity with supercars or when their patience might at some point run out. Yeah, I, I don't that I have anything to say about a fuse or, or patience. There's a, a different level of patience required in, in every series around the world um, to, to work through uh, issues uh, that we see there. And certainly I would say that uh, there has has been some progress, and there there is a, a sense of urgency to to continue to make improvement improvements, uh, both near term 
in terms of calibration changes, which I would say are more on the, the interim containment uh, plan, as well as the commitment from the series for torque sensors and transient dyno, which is unfortunately longer term. Those things are, are all long lead and um, we wish they were in place already before the start of the season, but at least there are actions in place uh, to have them on hand. Stefan, as we discussed last week, it really feels like this transient dyno program just can't come soon enough to at least give us some answers on the engine front and sort of see what the next steps need to be to just eliminate this constant, you know, concern over parity. Yeah, absolutely. And it's good to hear from Rushbrook directly on this, you know, rather than just the whispering behind the sheds amongst teams and, and drivers. But the reality is it's not really moved on from what we already knew. The transparency issue is clearly one that grates at Ford and, and its teams, but hopefully this dyno work and the torque sensors can provide the answers and the confidence that everyone requires to just get on with it and go racing. Absolutely. Well, we now have some more details of the first confirmed wildcard program of the Gen 3 era. Triple uh, Eight has made its plans official with the super cheap entry to race at both Sandown and Bathurst as expected, as well as a solo outing for Zane Goddard in Darwin. Stefan, where does Zane slot into the pecking order, do you reckon? I mean, the Triple Eight hardware seems decent enough. The Red Bull Camaros are probably second best in the field, eliminating everything we just talked about, about this testing uh, that's happening this week and, and how that could shake up the pecking order. Um, do you think Zane could spring a surprise when we get to Darwin or will the lack of miles in the finished Gen 3 product be too much to overcome for him? Yeah, it's clearly tough for anyone to come into a professional series cold partway through, but he is in the best position possible being with Triple Eight and being able to lean on Shane and Brock's data and you know he's testing the super cheap car uh, this week as, as we mentioned before and he's been to darwin a couple of times as well like he made the shootout there in 2021 so at least he knows the place pretty well but yeah realistically if he's somewhere in the midfield does all the laps and prepares well for sandown and bathurst i think that'll be a good result Well, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we have a brand new Indy 500 winner with Joseph Newgarden triumphing at the Brickyard on Sunday or Monday morning, depends on where you're watching it. Uh, and the man orchestrating that victory was Newgarden's race engineer, Luke Mason. He's an Aussie who cut his teeth in supercars at Stone Brothers Racing and Erebus Motorsport before moving to the States and going through uh, NASCAR with uh, Richard Childress Racing and then moving to Team Penske. Uh, I grabbed Luke for a chat about winning one of the biggest prizes in world motorsport and just how that felt. So, yeah, I mean, you just won the Indy 500 as a race engineer. Uh, how the heck does that feel? I said it, it's, it's a pretty surreal moment when you're standing there and that thing crosses the line and, you know, I sort of blacked out for the next 15 minutes and my voice is gone and <laughs> you're with all your crew guys jumping around like idiots and then, you know, you climb the fence and, not, and all the rest of it and all the, <laughs> all the celebration and then kind of finally once you get through that, you have that little moment to yourself and you go, shit, that was, we actually did something pretty special and pretty cool that not many people get to do. So it's, I said, it's still very surreal, to be honest. It's still... Still hasn't quite, haven't been quite able to process it. 
How do you manage a race meeting that goes for the best part of a month? Like obviously, you know, you've got extensive experience in supercars and then with the NASCAR stuff, but that particular race meeting, how do you ride those highs and lows? You know, in in your case this year, not qualifying particularly well, keeping the faith that you're going to be in the hunt on race day. How does that journey sort of go? It's a lot of, I mean, all the hard work for Indy really is done you know, in the off-season and, and all the R&D that happens before you even put the car on the track. That's that's where all the speed is. You know, that's where you know, we're aero testing and we're doing driveline work and, and everything else. So you're doing all your planning. all happens so early that you know, once you actually put the car on track and practice, it becomes, that's the easy bit for us, really. And, you know, all, all you're trying to do is, is build momentum through those two weeks that you've got. So... You know, you try different things on the car and, and not everything works and then you reset and you go back and you learn something else and gradually you make the thing better and better. Obviously, qualifying didn't go quite go to plan, you know, unfortunately, which makes it a lot harder. You know, that's not quite how we drew it up. We would have liked to have started up the front and made our life a little bit easier there. But at the same time, going all the way back to the open test and we first rolled out the race car and race config and race setup, you know, that, that thing was a jet. And, you know, Joseph did 10 laps pit in and goes, this thing's a rocket. Like, let's, let's build from this and, and let's go. So, you know, to be honest, I said we went around in circles a bit with the race car and we got to carb day and sort of sat down and we had a bit of a chat and I'd come to the realisation that all I'd done over the past two weeks was make the car worse. So we literally just bolted on that. That car we we ran at the very first test, all the all the setup settings there, and and rolled with it on carb day, and it was it was back, and he was super happy, super confident. So, how did you kind of settle on the downforce levels that you were going to need for the race when you're coming from back in the pack a little bit, you know, so you can make that early progress but still be fast enough on the straights, you know, as we saw at the very end of the race to get past Marcus. You have to be very careful about about what you run and you know you'd think starting down the back would dictate that you have to run a fair bit of downforce to be able to follow cars and be able to get through the pack but at the same time if you, you know if you overdo it there once you get to the front you're a sitting duck and you can't do anything you know so you really have to sort of make a decision on where you think you're going to be at the end of the race so for us you know that car I think if you went through the whole field and did a bit of a survey, that car was probably one of the lightest cars on downforce in the whole field. <laughs> and we knew that, you know, we probably qualified out of position. At the same time, you know, it makes life easy when you've got the best pit crew and the, the people who go over the wall for us that you know, the game plan was we didn't need to pass many cars on track. All we had to do was get the two or three every pit cycle and, and make the most out of in and out laps. And eventually we're going to find ourselves in the top five and, once you're up with those guys, then being trimmed and running less downforce puts you in a position to, to do what we did. And when you do get out front, you can stay there. Just a sort of more general question, just on that point, you know, is there something that IndyCar needs to do about that passing in the pack? Has the additional downforce for this year made it too difficult to make progress? I know that's a weird question when you've just come from 17th and won the Indy 500, but is that something you've noticed <laughs> as a broader trend since you've, you know, been in this race engineer role? I think I think this year was definitely a step up in terms of how close cars could follow and how cars could race. I think I think what they've done with some of the the aero parts for this year and some of the the higher efficiency items that uh, are just more downforce for less drag have made the car 
it's a lot more raceable. And I think you probably saw in the coverage that cars are able to follow a lot closer. At the same time, the thing to remember is that the field is is so bloody close now that it's very difficult to see someone start 20th and just literally pass cars on the track and go through the field. It just doesn't happen. It's, you know, I don't think, I don't think you could come up with an aero package to, to do that, right? Because the field's so close and people figure it out and people move around. So I think definitely an improvement this year. Obviously, next year is a, a new year with the, the hybrid stuff and everything else going on. So there'll be another new challenge again, sort of a reset moment for everybody. But uh, yeah, looking forward to, to getting our hands stuck on that and in the off season working out what we need to do to go back to back. Obviously, there's a um, there's a lot of chat about the late restart, you know, for for the Indy 500. What was what was Joseph sort of saying during the stoppage, and what was the reaction when you realised how it was going to play out at the end, and you were going to get that shot? Well, we kind of there was there was sort of three shots at it, right? And we kind of thought that okay, once once the first one had happened, that the precedent was going to be set that you know if there was an opportunity to restart the race, whether it be one lap, two lap, three lap shootout, whatever it was, that they were going to do their best as an IndyCar to make sure the race finished under green. So, you know, in our mind, you know, it was always going to be red flagged because that's what they'd done the previous two times. So we always thought we were going to get another opportunity at it. And I think we were just ended up being very fortunate that, you know, we sort of, we started up front for the second restart and then got passed and then, no, being second was actually the best spot to be in for that last lap, funnily enough, and we just got lucky there and that he made the most of it. So you're, you know, comfortable. Obviously, there's there's people on the losing side of the ledger that aren't necessarily, um, you know, overly impressed with the decision to try and do what they had to do to finish under green, but, you know, you feel in a general sense that was the right call from the series? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think you know, you've got 350,000 people there watching, let alone – the audience and TV watching the live coverage and it just to me that they're always going to do everything they can to make sure the thing finishes under green and, and you know we've been told that you know everyone in the field knows that you know if anything they maybe they could have put the red flag out a lap earlier so there was two laps instead of one laps you know that might be one thing that they could have could have been different and then all of a sudden we're not no one's having this discussion anyway so I think I think to me they did the right thing and you know, if I was on the other side of the ledger, <laughs> I might have a different opinion. But yeah. you know, at the same at the, at, the, at the same time, I think I'd come to the realization that you know, that was always going to happen, and it was the right thing to do. And uh, last question before I let you get back to enjoying your celebrations: Who was more nervous on that last lap? Do you reckon was it uh, was it you on the wall, or was it Joseph in the car? Um, I think he he's such focus as an individual when he's in the car that I, I don't think he would have been nervous at all. He's, he's trying to work out where he wants to put the car, what move he's going to do, where he's going to do it. And then obviously once he's got the lead, how he's going to keep it. So I, I don't think he would have been nervous at all. I think, you know, me and Ashley, his wife and everyone else on the stand, I think we're probably a nervous wreck trying to figure out what was going to happen and hoping that you know, we we're going to come out on top there. So I think you know, definitely, definitely us on the stand was more nervous than the way he was. Stefan, that really is an amazing achievement for Luke, right? I mean, to go all the way from, you know, from supercars here, from I'm sure winning at Wanneroo with Will Davison in 2015 was magical, but, I mean, what an incredible achievement for that bloke. Yeah, it's awesome to see, and he's certainly still got some mates in supercars who are really happy 
for him as well. And he did a good job in that interview too. Like, I'm not sure if you'd be in such good nick 24 hours after winning Indy. What, <laughs> what was he up to when you called him? Uh, he was actually at the banquet, at the winner's banquet. He had to walk out of the banquet hall to take the call. So good on him for actually doing that. He did He did mention before I hit the record button that uh, he was feeling some of the, uh, the the festivities from the evening before. <laughs> but I reckon when you've won the Indy 500, you can pretty much be forgiven for getting up to anything. Anyway, someone else that had a bid on over the weekend was my boss at Motorsport Network, Charles Bradley. He was on double duties leading our Indy 500 coverage as well as helping out with the Monaco coverage. I grabbed him for his thoughts on the 2023 running of both of those huge races and here's what he had to say. Um, yeah, so for, for, for Joseph Newgarden, like how important is this Indy 500 win in terms of his legacy in IndyCar? He's a two-time champion, obviously, but, you know, what does this mean for someone like him and his legacy in the, in the category? Well, I don't think you can be a multiple IndyCar champion without winning the Indy 500 if you want to regard yourself as a great, you know, simple as that. Uh, it's the hardest race of the year. It's the scariest monster of the year. The scale, the size and the scale of that place just uh, needs to be seen to be believed. And uh, he got it done when it mattered. You know, he timed that final move to perfection on that last one lap restart, then celebrated like a boss with the fans and uh, received yeah, $3.6 yeah. million in prize money. So that's not a foul payday, is it? No, I mean, it's a fairly long race weekend, but uh, it goes for two weeks or three weeks or whatever it is. But if you're going to bank that at the end of it, it's not bad. I mean, it'll be a well-debated topic the way that that late restart played out what's your take on you know you know if that's what the sport should be doing we've seen a bit of it with formula one as well you know here in melbourne uh in melbourne earlier this year is this how sports should be playing out the ends of these races i also saw quite a few people compare it to you know abu dhabi 2021 and you know for all the shade that people gave michael mazzy about that i can't believe the same noise is being created about indycar literally following its own rules to the letter you know they they tell all the teams, all the drivers, that they'll do everything possible to, you know, create a green flag scenario to race through a checkered flag. You know, the, and the the only loose element here was the fact they came straight out of the pit lane and went to the green flag on, you know, fairly cold and old tyres. And you're going into turn one at, what, two, 220 miles an hour? You know, it's probably proper uh, big boy pants stuff. And uh, I guess there's a reason why, you know, AJ Point, Mario and... Talents are legends here because, you know, you just have to pull your belts tight and get it done on that last lap, don't you? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it is always a funny one. We talk about, you know, we see it with, with guys, you know, with the wet weather running in Formula One so much. Like, it is sketchy, it is dangerous, but these are like highly paid, highly skilled professional race car drivers. It's what they're there to do, right? Yeah, absolutely. you just got to go and get it done what it matters. And, uh, you know, the officials are human beings at the end of the day. You know, it, it, whether they make mistakes or not, they just call it as they see it. And as it says, you know, strictly in the, in the IndyCar rules, it's you, we will try and finish the race, not under a yellow, we'll go for a checker as, as much as we can. The only screw up that I felt they made, they, they took too long to throw that last red flag. If they'd done it literally like 60 seconds earlier, 40 seconds earlier, um, that they'd have had an extra lap, they'd have come out of the pits, done a proper warm-up lap, and then we'd have got it done and no one would be complaining. But uh, I, I don't see a problem with it still. What did we learn from the Indy 500 this year? Who overperformed across the month of May, in your opinion, and who underperformed in that race? 
Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, there was one real sort of hard luck story for me, and that was Alex Palau. I mean, this guy's been hosed twice in the pits now in two years. He's been the fastest guy, and it just shows how hard this race is to win. The guy's a total stud. He finished fourth from the back of the grid this year. I mean, then put in the pit wall and got his front wing broken by somebody doing a half spin, you know, hoonigan stuff in front of him. I mean, what can you do? And then, you know, his first lap in qualifying was just unbelievable last weekend. And the way he just held on to the car getting looser and looser and looser across the four laps that they do was absolutely staggering. And, um, and it's, you know, it's a shame that he's probably bowed out with a fourth place when he was definitely the fastest car in the field, I would have said. And it's probably also his last start for Ganassi here because he's definitely going to Aaron McLaren next year. But then again, they had rocket ships too this weekend. So uh, thanks to Mark Webber's old engineer, Gavin Ward, getting it done. So uh, maybe he's not so uh, not so sad after all. He's got something to look forward to. Now, you were doing a, a fairly prestigious double duties act over the weekend, covering Monaco as well. I mean, it's no secret that qualifying is better than a race when it, better than the race when it comes to the Monaco Grand Prix. That's pretty standard. But holy smokes, like qualifying this year and Max's pole lap, that was really something else. I like, love or hate the guy. He really is like a very special talent, one of the absolute best we've seen, that bloke, isn't he? I think he is. I mean, I'll, I'll be that guy who says he's like uh, he's like that Gilles Villeneuve talent, but you know the one who survived the wrecks and the madness, and he's basically turned that dial back from you know 111 to to 10. Yeah, and he's hit the sweet spot now. He's grown into that role, two-time world champion, and now he's just gunning it relentlessly. And we saw in Friday practice, and it looked like Adrian knew he tried something mad because the, he basically came on the radio saying, this car is undrivable. He was saying, mate, I am going to shun any minute. And you've got to listen to that. They, again, they dialed the car back into what he wanted from it. And then the rest of the weekend, he was absolutely perfect. And I think, you know, these, these guys who, who like to push the envelope every weekend, you know, that's what sets Red Bull apart from everybody else. It's why they're getting it done. Uh, I think the only black spot on their weekend was Sergio shunning in Q1, not only ruining his chances game, letting everyone have a great look at the underside of that Red Bull and uh, taking all the, all the snaps to send back to the uh, other teams. It's probably the only uh, blot on the weekend. There's always this talk that F1 has outgrown Monaco and that, you know, the race is going to be boring, but I just still love it. And I love a track where the driver can really make a difference like Max did in quality, you know, I don't think, the, I mean, this race was quite entertaining with that little bit of rain and that sort of stuff. It still takes so much precision to actually piece an entire race together on that track. Where do you sit on the whole, you know, should Monaco be the jewel in the crown for Formula One? I mean, I, I just love it. I mean, there's, there's a lot of uh, crap attached to Monaco and all the stuff that goes with it. But qualifying at Monaco is the best hour of motorsport in the year for me. Literally cannot miss it. You can't take your eyes off it. You don't know what's going to happen next. And yeah, I just won't take any further questions on that one. You know, just look at Max's final sector on that pole lap where he's bouncing off the walls left and right to get pole position. It's one of the most exciting things you can ever see. And uh, again, it was like watching what you, if you put Gilles Villeneuve in that car. That's exactly what he would have got done to get it done. You know, the guy's a total rock star. You know, it's as good as it gets. And then you've also got Bill Fox, Fernando Alonso getting it done as well. So I think there's uh, there's so much to enjoy about Formula One at the moment, even around, you know, a Monaco, which the race is always going to be a bit of a fallen the leader, even if it does pour down with rain. 
Uh, and even then, you know, we ended up with Max hitting the wall and uh, the, the guy just just can't do anything wrong at that moment. He bounces off the barrier the right way, carries on, takes a victory by, what, 20-odd seconds. So, uh, yeah, the guy's just lit at the moment. Just while we're on the subject of big events, Stefan, from what I can see, there is no bigger this weekend than the V8 Sleuth Super Sale on Saturday. There will be a pop-up store in action at the Onyx Cafe in Cheltenham, Victoria, with up to 60% off the Sleuth range, including books, some of which were written by Stefan, uh, DVDs, models, memorabilia, prints, posters, and so much more. It runs from 9am to 1pm this Saturday, and you'll know you're at the right place when you see the Castrol Mustang show car out the front. All right, let's take a look at what else happened around the world over the weekend. In Monaco, Pepe Marti and Gabriel Mini won the F3 races and Ayumu Iwaza and Frederick Vesti won the F2 races. Aussie Harry Jones, meanwhile, was the third best rookie in Porsche Super Cup on the Monaco streets. And Ryan Blaney capped off an incredible weekend for Team Penske by winning the rain-delayed Coca-Cola 600 in Charlotte. It was his first NASCAR Cup Series win since August 2021. Okay, Castrol mailbag time. Dylan Olsen asked, do you think something similar to Project 91 would be good for supercars to have different drivers come in and do some rounds? Uh, for me, the short answer is absolutely. Look what the program has brought to NASCAR in terms of interest. I mean, I'm not a NASCAR fan of any repute, but it always piques my interest when someone like Kimi Raikkonen or Jensen Button takes part, and I'll certainly be watching Chicago when Giz is out there. Um, so yeah, I think the concept has the potential to generate new fans and could even help bring new talent talent into the category or, or put new talent, you know, in the eyes of the category to be discovered. Um, it's great. And I think it would do the same thing for supercars. The only challenge with anything like this is commercializing it and making sure that it makes financial sense to somebody out there. What do you reckon, Stefan? Yeah, it's an awesome concept and it would be really cool to see in supercars, but there's that commercial side you mentioned. And then also a bit of a question on how competitive an entry like that would actually be in supercars yeah. like Project 91, obviously NASCAR road courses, there's probably a bit of a bigger spread of driving talent uh, on the road courses. So there's a chance for an outsider to come in and be right in the mix and get a lot of attention. Whereas, yeah, we, we talked about it before, even with Zane Goddard, but for an international with no supercars experience to drop into a sprint round and be on the pace, that's a, that's a big ask. And if you look look back, like probably the closest thing we've actually had to this was when Jacques Villeneuve came out to sub at Kelly Racing in 2012. Yeah. And he was he was back row Joe like every race pretty much. So, yeah, realistically, the Enduros are still our best shot, I think, of seeing big name internationals, be it as co-drivers or part of a wild card. And hopefully we do see more of that in the future. Alrighty, let's hand out some Castrol stars of the week. Stefan, I'm going to give my Castrol star this week to Matt Hillier. He's the Walkinshaw Andretti United sub-assembly apprentice slash promising young race driver. Uh, he's had some great success in Formula Ford already and scored his first three wins in the WAU-run Toyota 86 at Phillip Island over the weekend. Um you know, between Matt and the Super 2 kids, uh, that team is definitely harvesting some real talent right now. Uh, Stefan, who have you got for your Castrol star this week? I'm giving my star of the week to Justin Murray and his sponsorship team at Super Cheap Auto for their wildcard launch on the weekend. Not many teams do in-person launches these days, so to attract a bunch of fans to North Shore and Brisbane and not only have the car and the drivers there, but put on a show with fireworks and all the rest of it, it's just great to see that sort of investment being put in. 
Awesome. Well, that's it for this week. Remember to like, subscribe and review our work wherever you listen to your podcast. And we'll be back next week with more Castrol Motorsport News. Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here. And yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication and so much more for all sorts of makes, models and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 W Racing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au.